Hello, and welcome to the Nutcast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Better Be Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 80th episode of the Nauticast titled Heavy Lies the Head, an analysis of Akasha King's Catelyn 1, in which good King Rob makes his peace with the Lannisters and all is well in Westeros forevermore. Good. I'm so glad that Rob Stark is the protagonist. <laughs> it works out so well that way. And we're very excited to introduce our returning guest for this episode. You may know him from his excellent chapter-by-chapter essays over at Race for the Iron Throne, or his writings at Tower of the Hand on Elsewhere on uh, political and social issues involving the world of Westeros, or you may know him from his previous appearances on this here podcast for A Game of Thrones Editor 11 and A Game of Thrones Catelyn 11, the latter of which will be especially relevant to this episode. Please welcome back to the Nauticast, Stephen Atwell. Hello! We're so happy to have you back, man. It's a, it's a pleasure. I'm happy to be here, especially for this chapter. It's a good ass fucking chapter. Like I'm very excited to do this chapter, especially given I really enjoyed going back and listening to Catelyn Eleven when you were on the last time with us. It was a lot of fun getting back into that and getting your insights on the politics and wars of Westeros. So it's going to be a lot of fun doing this yet again for another Catelyn chapter where the plot is only thickening and the political plot especially is only thickening. Yeah, this is a perfect follow-up to Catelyn Eleven in so many ways. It's an almost like cinematic cut from those cries to the first shot of this chapter with Rob messing with his crown and trying <laughs> right. to get it to fit. You can see exactly where George is going with this. And there's there's just a, a confidence to the writing that even though a lot of this is kind of dry and info-dumpy, you can tell how excited George is about the, the way his story is expanding and what he's doing with these characters in particular. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Arch Mr. June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Word of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zors, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the Hybrid Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valerian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lord James Stormborn, War of the Worldwide Werewood, finally got that one right, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Richard, Sealer of Bravos, Kelly, War of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen, the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, finally, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsmith sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., a small council patron, and he asks, Building off your discussion on the hell site known as Twitter regarding George's philosophy on war, which theme from the books do you agree with most and which do you disagree with, if any? Are there any that you were persuaded by George's worldview on? Obviously, we've all been impacted by George's pen in some way or he wouldn't be here, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on your respective windows through which you're viewing this series. That's a great and definitely open-ended question we could talk a lot about. You know, it's hard to say what agreeing with a theme really means. If it resonates with you, if it doesn't work with your experiences, it doesn't necessarily mean it's invalid. But the one that hits home to me a lot lately as I think about it coming off of season eight and going into A Clash of Kings is the idea that I think you've written about before, Stephen, that apotheosis is temporary. Yeah. That being being your best self is something you do in a moment and then tomorrow you got to get up and go to work and deal with people again. 
and that it's not this exalted status. Like, the, you know, the reason everyone loves the ending of The Graduate when their smiles fade and they realize, right. oh, we're still probably going to be our parents when this is over and th that this great moment happened didn't change our lives completely. I think you can see George going for that with characters like Danny or Stannis or even on a small scale, uh, J.R. Mormont, like we were talking about the other week, how he recognizes that the real threat at the end of A Game of Thrones, wants to do something about it. But by the time you get to his actual plan late in The Clash of Kings, it's attack Mance, who is a threat, but he knows is not the real, you know, dominant threat at that point. The, the, what do you guys think? What's a theme that resonates particularly strongly with you? Guess first. I've always gone with the existential victory. That, of course. You know, I mean, ever since Serial for All, it's like, yeah, the the point is choosing to do the right thing. And and I think, you know, there, there's a lot of critiques that Martin has made of the fantasy genre. Some are more apt than others, but I think one of them is this idea, you know, that he explores so much in the Sansa chapters about the idea that, like, being good should lead to a good outcome, which on the face of it is like a good thing for people to want to believe like i understand why people want a, a world that makes moral sense hmm. but like there is something to that idea of like no you you stand up even when you know you're gonna lose you stand up when it's the old adage that like um morality is is who you are in the dark mm -hmm. it's like when no one can tell when it, you know, it really isn't going to matter to anyone else but you. That's when it matters the most. You know, you have that no chance, no choice, obviously, in Brienne's arc mm -hmm. that we find in A Feast for Crows. I, I think something that uh, that appeals to me and that's kind of I've changed my perspective about that George has changed my perspective on, rather, is kind of this idea of, like, we if only we had a good person occupying this role, if only we had a just mm -hmm. man, if only, like, villains got punished. And, like, I, I the great thing about George's writing is that George shows us how a person like Stannis, who Cresson says is, you know, just and is has this idea of justice that goes just beyond the point of reason, like what that actually is going to look like in genre fiction in a more realistic sense. It's also a question, too, about things like vengeance. I think that George has had an impact on, like, my feelings about vengeance, that it's not just about hitting back someone who wrongs you, but ultimately it's about finding uh, some sort of cosmic unity and in, in some sort of and what 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 and what your response is to the injustice that you find in the world but that does kind of take us to this question about what we most disagree with and i think something and and i'm i'm, I'm never sure whether george is actually communicating this or just asking questions so to speak is this idea about war and about peace and the value of peace and this kind of the idea that we kind of see a little bit that that what that it's a good idea to make peace with people who are like the, the oppressors, the oppressive class in Westeros, whether the Starks should have made peace with the Lannisters in, in Westeros in a clash of or kings Danny here. Or Danny with the slave owners. Or Danny yeah. with the slavers, or, you know, something like Wyman Manderley with the phrase and the Boltons after the Red Wedding. Uh, you know, this is a question that we're, I, obviously George is again pushing us to like kind of recognize that people that we sympathize with like Wyman Manderley can do horrific deeds like, you know, feed humans to other humans, especially humans had nothing to do with the Red Wedding. But at the same time, I do wonder whether George is kind of a little bit kind of super influenced by this whole hippie movement and by the by his opposition to the Vietnam War. And it's kind of ex-Catholic, ex-Catholic as well. Right. And he takes this perspective that not that all war is bad because he is on record saying that not all war is bad, like he would have fought in World War Two. But that's kind of like the extreme case, in the extreme instance. You know, I think like I think there is a impulse that we, that 
for me that I disagree most with this, with George is that you do have to resist violent tyranny. You do have to resist injustice. And sometimes violence is the only way to resist the injustice of slavery, the injustice of Nazism, the injustice of, you know, ethnic genocide or genocide in general. So those are, that's kind of the thing. I, and again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to put words in George's mouth. Like a lot of the way he phrases these types of things is as questions like, Oh, I just want to explore like whether war can be just and whether war can, can work these ways and what we should do to get to, to arrive at peace, but I'm not always sure that questions communicated more seems like, oh, this war is mostly bad altogether unless you're fighting against the fucking others. Like that's that's kind of the perspective I end up getting after reading about the War of the Five Kings and the first five books of the series. What do you guys think? Yeah, this this has been like the the central ambiguity where like I've gone back and forth with um oh uh I think it was Miranese not about like Adam what Feldman, is, right? Yeah, what is George actually trying to get at with what Danny was going through in the Dance of Dragons because if the argument is like oh we should have been nicer to the slave owners like I'm sorry but you know uh, no the, the Dunning <laughs> School and about 150 years of alternate historians to one side that didn't work we tried being nice and what we got was Jim Crow what we got was, and, and this is you know to me the, the sort of really useful counter idea is this idea from uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates about what appears to be peace can be a form of slow motion violence, hmm. right? That when, when you're dealing with an oppressive system, it doesn't mean that there's not a war going on. It's just one that you don't, you know, in, unless you're one of the oppressed yourself, experience and see directly that, you know, the Civil War was not a tragedy just because it was killing people, you know. People were dying for, you know, 400 years before that. And it's just that we count some of those deaths as war and some as not. Um, so That's the Mark Twain idea, right? That, the, you know, you got the reign of terror, but what about the terror that existed for centuries before yes. that, where all those people were killed unthinkingly, but that doesn't get framed as an atrocity. And yeah, that's a great point. That, that conflict really, really divides people in how they look at Danny's Ark and Dance and John's Ark and Dance. And it's hard not to think about that when you look at the the political outcome of the series. Yeah, well, we shall have to see what happens in The Winds of Winter, which is coming out <laughs> any day now, right? Any day now, absolutely. I think for me, the theme that works the least well, and I'm not sure how much of this to ascribe to George versus the show, is the whole person who is most suited to rule is the one who doesn't oh, want to do it thing. For a variety of reasons, which, you, yeah, you, you both have talked well about, but it specifically irks me... And makes me think that there's something to it in the books, the way like Davos always thinks of himself as just like being a very simple, straightforward man, when no reading of Davos Seaworth's life story supports that. Like even before he signed up with Stannis, he was the most notorious and elusive smuggler in the Seven Kingdoms. He led, he led a ridiculously badass life the entire time. And part of me hopes the book isn't leading to that conclusion, that you, you have to... Part of me, what I'm really saying is part of me, the book doesn't lead to the conclusion that you have to be uninterested in politics to be good at politics, because that is the dumbest idea yeah. in I, all I was, of fantasy. I, I was going to say, like, that I, I've always resisted that as, like, Martin's perspective, because that would seem to go so hard against, like, every quote that he's ever given about, like, Aragorn and, you know, true rightful kings and so on and so forth. It's like, no. You want someone who has, like, an idea of what they want to do and wants to do it. 
because otherwise you get Roberts. Do you want Roberts? <laughs> yeah, I, and I think like two when we get Fire and Blood Volume when we got Fire and Blood Volume One, the the ideal Targaryen king, right, is Jaehaerys the First and, and Queen right. Alysanne. And there is a portion early in their reign where Jaehaerys the First goes all the way to Dragonstone to escape King's Landing and just spends his time studying how to actually be the king and to be the prepared king for, you know, what's coming in Westeros itself. And I hope that's George's perspective. That's what's going to make a good king is to have uh, this idea that we um, that that person, the person, the prepared person is the person best suited to to be the king. And certainly the most engaged. Yes. Like if if there's one thing that you can't say about Jaehaerys the First, he was not a hands-on monarch. Uh, sorry, hands-off monarch. Like, he was like, nope, if there's, like, any issue, no matter how small or big, I am going to be directly involved. Absolutely. So, thank you, Sir Frank B., his grace is high inquisitor for the question. We really appreciate it. If you guys are, of course, interested in asking us questions here, which we will be have, which will also be answered by guests as well, you're welcome to sign up as one of our sworn sword patrons at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF, where you can ask questions, get bonus episodes to include new our brand new Fever Dream episodes, which are coming out on a monthly basis now, get show notes, early access to episodes, and all sorts of different perks we have there on Patreon. And again, you can find that at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIAF. So here is the synopsis for Clash of Kings, Catelyn 1. Hot from the presses, Rob Stark's iron and bronze crown rests uneasily on his head. Where the Starks of old had their own crown for thousands of years, it had been lost when Torrin Stark knelt to Aegon the Conqueror. As for what happened with that crown and what Aegon did with it, no one knew. But Rob's crown, described as, quote, an open circlet of hammered bronze incised with the runes of the first men, surmounted by nine black iron spikes wrought in the shape of longswords, was intended to look the same as Torrin's crown. Catelyn, Rob, and the rest of the assembled lords, knights, bannermen, and guards wait in River Run's great hall for Sir Cleos Frey to be brought forward to the audience chamber. When he finally arrives, Rob orders his squire Oliver Frey to grab his sword, um, is, grab the sheath of his sword for Rob? This, the phrasing here is just kind of weird. Rob draws his sword and lays it across his lap. Sir Robin Riger, River Run's master of arms, forces the prisoner onto his knees to kneel before Rob. And Catelyn thinks this jabroni really doesn't look like a beautiful Lannister. Instead, he's much more Frey with his weak chin, brown hair, and thin face. Rob tells Cleos to rise, and then Catelyn notes that Rob didn't sound as icy as Ned would have, but he wasn't sounding like a boy either these days. All that worship was having its toll on Rob. Cleos, meanwhile, is a bit scared. No, no, not by the sword on Rob's lap. By Grey Wind. The direwolf comes forward and sniffs the captive knight, and everyone then smells the scent of fear. Guys, Cleos peed himself. No shame in that, though, right? Cleos scrambles to his feet quickly and thanks Rob as lord. Your grace, sparked Lord Umber the Great John, ever the loudest of Rob's nor the bannerman, and the truest and fiercest as well. Or so he insisted. Cleos quickly corrects himself to your grace, and Catelyn notes that this guy isn't very brave. Jamie would have been different if he were here. Jamie would have never given Rob any honorific. Rob tells Cleos that he has a very special mission for a very special boy. Cleos needs to travel to King's Landing to deliver a message to Cersei. Cleos is relieved to be going to King's Landing until Rob says that he's not freeing Cleos. He expects Cleos to return to River Run and return to captivity once he's got an answer from Cersei. And Rob expects this all on his vows as a knight. Cleos agrees, pledging after challenge by Sir Edmure Tully of House My Heart, and then he asks what message Rob wants to deliver. An offer of peace. Tell the Queen Regent that if she meets my terms, I will sheathe this sword and make an end to the war between us. Everyone gets all quiet except for Lord Rickard Karstark, who books it out of the hall. Rob gives his sword to Oliver and takes a piece of paper from him, which will spell out the terms of this agreement, and I'll list them here in bullet fashion for convenience sake. 1. Cersei will release Sansa and Arya and transport them to White Harbor. 2. Sansa and Joffrey's betrothal will end. 
Three, in return for this, Rob will release Willem Lannister and Tion Frey and send them back to Casterly Rock. Four, Ned's bones will be returned to Winterfell along with the bones of his men who died in King's Landing. Five, Ice will be returned to Robert Riverrun. Six, Lord Tywin will release Knights of Bannerman that he's held prisoner from the Battle of the Green Fork. Seven, in return, Rob will release prisoners taken at the Whispering Wood and the Battle of the Camps, except for Jamie, who remained a hostage to Tywin's good behavior. And eighth, and most importantly, Cersei will renounce all claims to dominion over the North to include, yes, the North, but also the Riverlands, the lands, quote, watered by the River Trident and its vassal streams, east of the Golden Tooth and west of the Mountains of the Moon. I, I know I'm skipping a lot of Catelyn's observations on each of these points, which will make this chapter excellent, but I promise Emmett and Steve will dive into these, these in, the, in the depth section. Great shot number booms out about the King of the North, much as he did back in Catelyn's final Game of Thrones chapter, and Rob says he has maps prepared by Riverrun's Maester Vyman, which Cleos is ordered to deliver to Cersei. And Tywin needs to GTFO from the Riverlands. He doesn't belong. And Cersei, well, she can kiss the taxes and homage from the Riverlands in the North goodbye. And the Lannisters need to surrender 10 highborn hostages for Tywin's good behavior. Two will be released every year to ensure that Tywin doesn't get all war crummy on the Riverlands again. Rob takes the parchment and tosses it to, the to Cleos, saying that these are his terms. If she meets them, I'll give her peace. If not, he whistled and Greybone moved forward, snarling, I'll give him another whispering wood. Everyone starts hooting and hollering like Alabamans at a backyard barbecue, and Cleos meekly agrees to give the terms to Cersei. So Rob says that Cleos gets new clothes and a good meal, but he's to leave first thing in the morning. With that, Rob ends the audience and walks out with everyone bending the knee to him. Outside of the audience hall, Catelyn and Edmure meet up with Rob. Cat compliments Rob on his performance, but she does scold him for threatening Cleos with his wolf. And Rob, uncharacteristically Joffrey-like in my opinion, gets all smiley talking about how scared Cleos looks. But that's not what Catelyn was paying attention to. Instead, she saw Lord Rickard Carstark exit the building. Well, Rob saw that too, he says, handing his crown to good, to good Frey Oliver. Edmure says that more people probably felt similar to Rickard, and he kind of has a point. The Lannisters are out here burning their way around the Riverlands. Edmure wants to march on Harrenhal immediately, but Rob unhappily replies that they can't. They simply don't have the strength. But Edmure decides to persist, saying that they're not going to be strong if they sit around Riverrun. And whose doing is that? Catelyn snapped at her brother. It had been at Edmure's insistence that Rob had given the River Lords leave to depart after his crowning, each to defend his own lands. The Vances, Brackens, and Malisters were back in their own lands, repelling or preparing to repel Lannister Reavers, and Edmure kind of counterpoints Catelyn by saying that they had to be let that he had to let the River Lords go home. The duty of the leader class is to protect their people, but it would be really, really bad if the Northmen went home. Rob says he'll speak with Lord Rickard Karstark, but he understands Lord Rickard's perspective. He had two of his sons, and they were both killed by the Lannisters. He doesn't want to make peace with his son's killers, with Rob's father's killers. Catelyn, though, isn't about that. In a line that's going to get a kind of a repeat beat throughout the series in various forms, she brings the heat. More bloodshed will not bring your father back to us or, or Lord Rickard's sons. Regardless, if Rob wanted peace, he should have offered better terms, but Rob really wasn't about peace here and now. His beard was coming in red, and though Rob probably thought this beard made him look fierce, royal, and all like kind of a grown-ass adult, Catelyn knows the truth. He's still just 15 years old. And as a boy, he wanted vengeance just as much as Lord Rickard did. It had taken all Catelyn could do to get him to agree to make any offer to the Lannisters. Catelyn states that Cersei will never trade Sansa and Arya for the Lannister cousins. She'll want Jaime, but Rob can't trade Jaime for the girls. His lords would kill him, and they can unmake him as a king as well. If your crown is the price we must pay to have Arya and Sansa return safe, we should pay it willingly. Half our lords would like to murder Lannister as cell. If he should die while he's your prisoner, Ben will say that he deserved it, Rob finished. Yeah, you really want that, Rob? Because if that happens, Arya and Sansa are dead too, Catelyn says. So Rob beats a quick retreat and says that, well, you know, Lannister, he's not going to die in his cell. No one can even talk to him without Rob's express permission. But King Rob will not free Jaime. 
And it's at this point that Catelyn realizes that Rob is looking down at her. She wonders whether it was the war or the crown that was making Rob grow old so fast. So Catelyn decides to poke Rob, asking if he's afraid to face Jamie in battle again. Oh boy, Rob. Oh boy, Catelyn. Grimmon starts growling, sensing Rob's anger, and Edmure tries to say that the boy has the right of it, and oh no, Edmure, bad move. Don't call me the boy, Rob, said Rowling as uncle, his anger spilling out all at once on pure Edmure, who had only meant to support him. I'm almost a man grown and a king. You're king, sir, and I don't fear Jamie Lannister. I defeated him once. I'll defeat him again if I must. Only, well, I might have been able to trade the Kingslayer for father, but... But not for the girls. Catelyn's voice was icy quiet. Girls are not important enough, are they? Rob gets all quietly hurtful and looks at Catelyn with blue eyes, the same eyes that Catelyn had given him. Catelyn sees that Rob is wounded, but he would not admit it. She realizes that this outburst was unworthy of her and thinks that Rob is really just trying to do his best, trying so hard. Yet, I have lost my Ned, the rock my life was built on. I cannot bear to lose the girls as well. Rob says he'll do what he can for Sansa and Arya, and maybe Cersei will, and maybe Cersei will accept the terms, or she'll rue the day if she rejects them. But with that business out of the way, hey, Catelyn, you sure you don't want to go to go to the twist to pick Rob's bride? Awful nice there this time of year, Rob's heard. He wants me gone, Catelyn thought wearily. Kings are not supposed to have mothers, it would seem, and I tell him things he does not want to hear. Catelyn thinks that Rob is old enough to pick his own wife. Yeah, yeah, he is. So Rob asks if Catelyn wants to go with Theon to Seaguard and take a ship for Winterfell. She can go hang out with Bran and Rickon in Winterfell. They need her. Catelyn realizes what Rob is really saying here is that he doesn't need her around with all that annoyingly good advice. But no, Catelyn needs to stay here at Riverrun. Her father is dying. She wants to remain with him. So Rob tries playing the boy and saying he could command her to go, but Catelyn ignores him. I'll say again, I would sooner you send someone else to Pike and kept Theon close to you. Rob thinks that the best person to negotiate with Balon Greyjoy is his son, but Catelyn puts in that Jason Malister or Titus Blackwood or Stephen Frey or fucking anyone would be better than Theon. Theon is a hostage, and even if he had fought bravely for Rob in the past, Balon Greyjoy is not trustworthy. He's both an idiot pirate and a former king himself. Rob stood. I will not grudge him that. If I am king of the North, let him be king of the Iron Islands. If that's his desire, I'll give him a crown gladly, so long as he helps us bring down the Lannisters. Catelyn tries to protest, but Rob says that his decision is final and he's off. He walks off stage with Grey Wind and Catelyn watches him go. Catelyn wants to see her father and asks Edmure to join her, but Edmure needs to um go talk with Desmond about the archers. Yeah, he'll definitely come later though. Uh-huh, sure he will. So Catelyn is off to go on her own. She passes through the central keep, walking by the beautiful godswood. She looks at the leaves and flowers who seem ignorant of the white raven that's come to River Run, announcing the end of summer. For that... Catelyn was duly grateful. Autumn was always a fearful time with its specter of winter looming ahead. Even the wisest man never knew whether his next harvest would be his last. Catelyn finds Hoster in his bed in his solar with a view of the Tumblestone and Red Fork rivers meeting beneath his room. Hoster remains in bed looking frailer than ever, but next to his bed is none other than Brendan Fuck the Lannisters Up Tully. Catelyn asks if Rob knew that the Blackfish, that the Blackfish was back, and Brendan says that he came straight away to Hoster's chambers. Besides, Brendan's got some kind of bad news, and he needs to tell Rob in private. Before that, though, Brendan asks Catelyn about Hoster. Well, Cat reports that he's the same. He sleeps and only talks rarely, talking about his old regrets, unfinished tasks, and people who've been dead a very long time. And he misses people, too. Manisa went in particular. Brendan thinks that Catelyn resembles Manisa, but Cat has it that Brendan remembers his her mom better than she has. This has been a very long time. The Blackfish wonders whether he'll come home and find a Hoster alive or dead. And though the two brothers had feuded their entire lives, they still loved each other. They sit in silence for a while, and then Catelyn asks what news Brendan has. So, Brendan takes her outside so as not to disturb Hoster. Outside, that damnable red comet hangs over the sky, menacing, and Brendan has thoughts about it. You could see it by day now. My men call it the Red Messenger. But what is the message? 
Catelyn recounts that the Greyjoy that the Great John Umber thinks it's a flag of vengeance for Rob, while Edmure thinks it's an omen for Tully victory. Catelyn herself thinks it looks like Lannister Crimson, but Brendan knows better. That thing's not crimson, Sir Brendan said. Nor Tully Red, the mud red of the river. That's blood up there, child, smeared across the sky. Ours or theirs? Was there ever a war where there was only one side who bled? Brendan shakes his head and gets down to telling the tale of what's going on. Well, it's bad news. The Riverlands are on fire, with fighting at the God's Eye all the way down to the Blackwater and across the Trident nearly as far north as the Twins. There's been some small victories by the pro-Stark forces by Mark Piper and Carol Vance, but the real victor so far has been Lord Beric Dondarrion. Woo-woo! Beric Dondarrion has been raiding the raiders, falling upon Lord Tywin's foraging parties and vanishing back into the woods. It's said that Sir Burton Craycall was boasting that he'd slain Dondarrion until he led his column into one of Lord Beric's traps and got every man of his killed. Catelyn recalls that some of Ned's guardsmen are with Beric, and she prays that the gods aid them. Well, so far so good, as Beric and Thorosamir are moving through the Riverlands with impunity. But that's the good news. The bad news is, well, the Riverlords. Jonas Bracken is wounded, his nephew is dead, Titus Blackwood pushed the Lannisters off Blackwood lands, but the Lannisters had already stolen all the livestock and crops. Worse yet was the fate of Lord Derry. Derry retainers had retaken Castle Derry, but they had only held the castle for two weeks before Gregor Clegane came and murdered everyone including Lord Derry. Catelyn was horror-struck. Derry was only a child. Aye, and the last of his line as well. The boy would have brought a fine ransom, but what does that mean to a frothing dog like Gregor Clegane? The beast's head would make a noble gift for all the people of the realm, I vow. Catelyn knows all about Gregor Clegane and his rep, but she doesn't want to talk about heads. You see, Ned's head is still mounted on a spike above the Red Keep. She still can't believe he's gone. All the same, Gregor was only Tywin Lannister's dog. It was Tywin who was the truly dangerous threat. Brynden agrees, saying that Tywin is hanging out in Harrenhal, feeding his army with forage, aka theft, and burning food his men can't carry on their backs. Additionally, Amory Lorch is out as a ravager, and some goddamn cohort excelsior is out there committing heinous war crimes. Catelyn thinks Edmure will be furious when he hears about this, and Brynden agrees, stating that this will be exactly what Tywin wants, to provoke the Starks and Tullys into battle. Rob is like to give him that wish, Catelyn said fretful. He is as restless as a cat sitting here and Edmure and the Great John and the others will urge him on. Given Rob's smashing victories against the Lannisters, some of his bannermen were calling Rob, quote, Aegon the Conqueror Born, but the Blackfish doesn't like the idea of Rob giving Tywin what he wants, and Tywin wants them to march against Harrenhal. Harrenhal. Every child of the Trident knew the tales told of Harrenhal. Old Nan had told tales of Harrenhal and how Aegon had come to this castle with his dragons and how the great walls of the castle would do fuck all against dragons. For dragons fly. King Harren and his entire family died that day when Aegon came. Catelyn doesn't want Rob to fight within sight of Harrenhal, but they have to do something. Well, Brendan agrees, and they have to be really quick about it because there's even worse news. There's yet another Lannister army gathering at Casterly Rock, commanded by Sir Stafford Lannister, cousin to Tywin and brother to Joanna. Stafford was old and kind of an idiot, but his son Davin was more formidable. They still have time to face them now as the army isn't ready for battle given its composition of mostly small folk and free riders, but they will come eventually. And when they do come, Tywin won't be the same old fool that Jaime was in battle. Tywin will wait for Stafford to come before marching up from Harrenhal. Unless, said Catelyn. Yes, Sir Brendan prompted. Unless he must leave Harrenhal, she said, to face some other threat. Brendan considers this and asks if she means Lord Renly, King Renly, Catelyn corrects. She would need to keep the titles right if she would ask him for help. Perhaps, the Brendan smiled a dangerous smile. He'll want something, though. He'll what the kings always want, Catelyn said. Homage. 
And that is a Clash of Kings, Catlin 1. What a fucking chapter, guys. It's been a few years since I read it, but this chapter gets me really excited for Clash in the same way that the prologue does. You know, you know, don't get me wrong, I love all the Davos and the Tyrion and Bran and Theon chapters, but Catelyn, it's like just kind of like, I, I feel like she bridges several areas of interest of mine, whether it's the politics, the military, the, the magical side, especially as it intersects with the politics and the military side. This, 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 these chapters are great. I love it. And I love her first chapter. I know it's probably not the best chapter in A Clash of Kings, obviously. It's not the best Catelyn chapter for sure. But I'm curious what you guys thought about it. So as we went through A Game of Thrones, I was flip-flopping on what my favorite POV in that book was, just as Jeff was with his favorite chapter. <laughs> was it Catelyn or Danny or maybe Sansa? I have no such hesitation for A Clash of Kings. Catelyn is number one, and it's not even close. I think this is some of the best material in the series. All the great themes and moods and imagery of A Clash of Kings are best expressed in her chapters. Each one locks into place perfectly as a self-contained set piece. You got the Stannis v. Renly one, and the Shadow Baby one, and the Jamie one, etc., while still contributing to the whole, offering different angles on the same ideas. If Catelyn's storyline in A Storm of Swords is just one long descent, it's just gloomy shades of black and white giving way at the end to a geyser of red, her storyline in The Clash of Kings is, is more like a rainbow, like the full spectrum is here, as, as Jeff was just saying. Every chapter has its own distinct color pattern, everything comes full circle at River Run. This opening chapter is the dawn, the morning light glimmering on Rob's sword as he proposes peace. And her last chapter in the book is the long night of the soul, set at midnight as Catelyn stares down Jamie Lannister, her last desperate hope for making that peace a reality. This chapter is coming off the high of King in the North at the end of A Game of Thrones, and that last chapter builds a bridge to the tragic downfall in A Storm of Swords. But, putting the larger movements of Catelyn's story aside, this chapter is terrific on its own terms. There's just so much dense, nuanced politics to cover, so much to, to chew over, some of which inspires hope, but a lot of which, especially on reread, inspires dread, and we wanted Stephen here to help us tease it all out. So for my money, Catelyn, one of Clash of Kings, even more so than other first chapters in this book, is a companion piece for her last chapter in the previous book. If Catelyn 11 was all about the romantic nationalism of defiant voices acclaiming the first king of the north, this chapter is about what happens the day after the coronation, when you have to get up and start governing. And throughout the chapter, both Catelyn and Rob find themselves wrestling with the dilemmas of feudal politics. How do you craft terms of peace that northern and river lords can accept? And does that mean sacrificing your own family's interests? When you're fighting a war in the riverlands with northern troops, what strategy do you pursue that will keep your army together en route to victory? When you're in a war of five kings, which kings are safe to make alliances with? At the same time, one of the hardest things to do on a reread is to analyze Catelyn and Rob's decision-making without falling prey to the traps of presentism when we judge people's actions on the basis of later information that we have that they didn't have at the time, or teleology when we assume that what happened was inevitable and ignore the role of contingency. As can be seen in significant swaths of the fandom, it's easy to come to the conclusion that Starks were always doomed or that Rob and Catelyn were solely responsible for the defeat of the Northern cause due to an unending series of blunders. Rather, I think what we see in this chapter is what happens when you make the hard decisions, and the fates, i.e. George R. R. Martin, ensure that you lose anyway. Because at each decision point in this chapter, Catelyn and Rob are going to do the hard thing. They're going to, like try their best to come up with a workable solution, and it's all going to 
come apart for them, mostly not because of anything they themselves did. You know, it's it's been several years since I've read A Clash of Kings in full, and something that slipped my mind in the years since reading is how fucking great Catelyn's point of view chapters are. You know, I, I've read them all now at this point before coming out to this episode, and I think just like all the macro plot and character beats that Emma was talking about are fabulous, the intersections of magic and politics and military, but the kind of minor and character plot beats, they slap too. I mean, I love that scene, and it just kind of like touched me. I was just reading before we came on air where, where Catelyn accepts Brienne into her service in Catelyn 5 with Clash of Kings. It's, it's so really fantastic and great. But, you know, I'm also struck in this chapter particularly, in the chapter that follow at how good Catelyn is in thinking politically in this book. And I'm going to make a strange and probably controversial comparison to the idiots out there. Catelyn is on par with Tyrion Lannister's political and military strategic mind here. Yes, I know Tyrion's going to get all the accolades for his pragmatic, cynical hand of the king tenure. But Catelyn is really demonstrating an apt understanding of the political world in which she lives. And it's all in the wake of monumental tragedy and Ned's death and the danger that is to three of her five children and eventually all of her children by the end of this book. From her perceptive observations of the audience Rob has in River Run, to her warnings against trusting Balon Greyjoy, to her Tyrion-esque pragmatism and wanting to treat with Renly, Catelyn demonstrates a really clear-headed approach to politics here that we don't see demonstrated by many other characters. I think the interesting divide, though, is in how they approach politics. Tyrion has a cynical approach. Catelyn, though, is animated by this kind of moral horror of what she's witnessing around her and hearing around her. You know, consider this contrast in, in just two very quick passages. I promise it'll be quick. First, from Tyrion's point of view, and Tyrion 2, the next chapter we'll get to next week, Varvaris informs him that a captain is planning to set sail for Dragonstone and to swear his allegiance to Stannis. And Varys says, Sir Jocelyn could arrange for him to vanish, but a trial before the king would help assure the continued loyalty of the captains. And keep my royal nephew occupied as well, Tyrion thought. As you say, put him down for a dose of Joffrey's justice. You know, Tyrion is pragmatically cynical here, letting Joffrey commit atrocious injustice in the name of giving himself some peace and quiet from Joffrey, as well as hopefully shoring up the loyalty of the other sea captains that are in King's Landing. Contrast that cynical pragmatism that Tyrion has to Catelyn's reaction when she learns of Lord Derry's murder. Catelyn was horror-struck. Derry was only a child. And it's in that context that Catelyn makes a really smart, pragmatic move in suggesting that she treat with Renly. Yes, you heard me correct. From a purely pragmatic standpoint, Catelyn is right to treat with Renly. That aside, though, the contrast is that Catelyn is willing to make pragmatic, strategic moves to safeguard the lives of innocents, whether it be future boy lords or her daughters. And then, Tyr then Tyrion, though, wants some peace and quiet and loyalty to an unjust king and cause. It's in the motivation angle that I think we could say Catelyn's pragmatic politics greater sign Tyrion's pragmatic politics and it's not particularly close when Jamie says by what right does the wolf judge the lion part of me is sympathetic and knows what he's talking about and part of me thinks actually by by a fair amount of right <laughs> does the wolf judge yeah. the lion because you behave considerably worse even if the Starks are by no means enlightened practitioners of, of politics and I think you can definitely see that in the Clash of Kings that Tyrion is obviously the protagonist and the center of it and does make a lot of sympathetic-ish decisions, or at least have a lot of sympathetic end states in mind. But I think Catelyn is equally focused on as a, as, a, as a political mind, and she, yeah, she has a lot in common with how he makes decisions, but also a lot of differences, I would say. But before we talk more about Catelyn, I think we should, we should talk a little bit about Rob. I think specifically I want to start where we started last time, but the, the young wolf has like this pitch-perfect incarnation of the warrior king ideal, just like Robert in his true steel prime. Rise, Sir Cleos. Her son's voice was not as icy as his father's would have been, but he did not sound a boy of fifteen, either. War had made a man of him before his time. Morning light glimmered faintly against the edge of the steel across his knees. 
And, you know, given how poorly King Stannis and King Joffrey generally came off in their opening scenes in this book named for the kings, I think it's especially notable that King Rob looks and sounds and acts like he just stepped out off a stained glass window. Like, you can feel both room and realm orbiting around him in this opening scene. He's putting his best foot forward. He's determined to come off not like a pretender, but like a prince that was promised for his kingdom to feel legitimate. He has to as well. And he's nailing. He's got the sword on his lap. He's got a peerless hype man in the Great John. Every word he says is precisely aimed at, his, at its goal like, like a dart. Of course they crowned him. Look at him. And, of course, he has Grey Wind, the symbol of his power, the foundation of his legend. And to borrow from Wyman Manderley and Dance, it's, it's, the wolf is the iron male beneath the velvet courtesy of the peace elver. Yet it was not the sword that made Sir Cleos very anxious. It was the beast. Grey Wind, her son had named him. A dire wolf, large as any elk hound, lean and smoke dark with eyes like molten gold. When the beast padded forward and sniffed at the captive knight, every man in that hall could smell the scent of fear. Sir Cleos had been taken during the battle in the Whispering Wood, where Grey Wind had ripped out the throats of half a dozen men. And Catelyn considers that use of Grey Wind to be a japery more befitting a boy than a king, which is just a wonderfully phrased line, but... I think that's more reflective of her shifting perspective on her firstborn child as he matures more than it is an accurate reflection of the politics at work. I don't think it's the same as Rob, like, waving a sword around in the godswood to threaten people who are hundreds of miles away. I think this is Rob trying to leverage his military record for political gain. He's trying to use his legend to force the Lannisters to the table. And George picks Cleo's free to be the emissary, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, when Catelyn says he just doesn't look like a proper Lannister, that reflects that the Lannisters as a whole aren't looking particularly good right now. The image they like to put up is Jamie, and what they look like right now on the whole politically is Cleo's Frey. But also because his just cringing cowardice highlights what a charismatic, intimidating presence Rob has become by comparison. And, you know, I'm saying he's living up to the image really well, and that doesn't make it easy or comfortable for him to do so. I love the chapter starts with our first sight of Rob wearing his crown, and he's shifting it around in his head, and it's not comfortable, and he takes it off as soon as he can. He says to all of our, like, specific, I think the line is like, get this thing out of my sight, or something <laughs> kind of dramatic yeah. about, like, I don't even want to touch this anymore. And as Catalan notes, this isn't actually the crown of the kings of winter it's it's their best guess this is a working backwards it's an approximation just like the new slash old kingdom that they're talking about and i think you know catalan is is never a hundred percent right in her political perceptions i think that's what makes her a realistic and complex political character but i think she hits the nail on the head right here it is no easy thing to wear a crown catalan thought watching especially for a boy of 15 years this doesn't come natural to Rob necessarily, despite him being a genuine prodigy on the battlefield, and he has to he has to work at it. He has to create this kingly, wintry adult voice to match his father's. And I think I, I, that's what makes me sympathetic to Rob in part is that while he's got these prodigious talents, you also see him having to craft this persona and live up to it going forward. Yeah, you can really sort of see a difference between like when he's on, and then the moment he's off stage, he's like, "Oh God." I really don't want to be doing this. And all the business with the crown really reminds me of like at the very end of the sword in the stone where like young Arthur has this crown. That's like way too big for him. And he's like trying to find a comfortable position <laughs> and he just can't do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a similar thing. Like Rob is, you know, stepping into like, not just, you know, God, think about how hard it is for anybody to step into adulthood. He's stepping into rulership at, you know, very little notice and doing a damn good job. But it's got, you know, the, the sort of responsibility has to weigh on you. Agreed. I think the responsibility is weighing on Rob, obviously symbolized by him kind of adjusting his crown all over the place. 
But I think he's doing a good job. You know, I made it my summary about how like Rob is acting kind of Joffrey like. And I and I, I kind of want to take that back because I do think that you make a good point, Emmett, that what's going on here is more that Rob is doing a really good job at the civil politics here of showing the strength of House Stark. Because we're at a place now where the Starks and the Riverlanders are at a place of political and military ascendancy. They've won two smashing victories against the Lannisters, and now they're at the point now where they have seemingly the upper hand, or at least they seem like they have the upper hand. Of course, at the end of this chapter, Brendan Tully is going to be like, well, you don't actually have as much of the upper hand as you think you do. That being said, though, the other thing that kind of distinguishes Rob from Joffrey and Stannis and their introductions is how this chapter actually opens. Yes, we have Cleos Frey cringing on his knees with the direwolf being around him, uh, with a sword being on top of Rob's lap. But all of that is intended as 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 scenery setting for what Rob actually has in mind. And that is actually to propose something that we have not yet heard in this narrative. Peace. Rob wants peace, kind of. Uh, Catelyn wants peace. Catelyn definitely wants peace. Rob (laughs) sort of wants peace. Rob accepts peace. Right. Exactly. Even with 40 asterisks, it's a great move. And yeah, Rob is definitely feeling uncomfortable about about his his new position. And I think he can see his, his temper starting to wear thin. Like when he kind of has to take some relief in how Grey Wind intimidates Cleos or he turns on Edmure at one point. And it's it's just, it's starting to wear, not only because he's stepping into a rulership position, but it's one he's making up. Like this has never existed before. Even when the Starks were king in the north, they didn't also have the Riverlands, an addendum to their empires. So this is this is something he has to invent as he's doing it. Like he's constantly laying down track in front of the train the entire time he's, he's acting in this role. And it, it wears heavily on the shoulders. And... Yeah, I give him credit. You know, Stannis starts the book by telling diplomacy to fuck off. Joffrey starts the book by preparing spikes for his fellow monarch's heads. But Rob starts the book by making an attempt to get everyone to stop killing each other. And yeah, of course, his motivations in doing so are different from someone like Beric Dondarrion, right? Or Septon Maribald, who understand how the war has destroyed the lives and livelihood of the peasants, and they want all sides to lay down their arms. Yeah, I'm sure they both would prefer Rob to Tywin. But they're not invested in any side winning. Rob very much wants his side to win, as does Catelyn. And they're, they're trying to leverage his military victories into the best possible post-war outcome for Team Stark. It's a question of momentum as much as anything else. Rob needs to strike while the iron is hot in order to get the best deal he can out of the Lannisters because there's a lot of moving parts. Team Stark includes many people with different interests, as we saw when we were covering a Game of Thrones Catelyn 11. All those people at the table with their right to argue and walk out and come back. You see Rob building from the personal... His sisters, his father's bones, his father's sword, to the more political, get off our land and never come back, dressed up in a couple of paragraphs. But the personal can't be separated from the politics so easily. That's why Rob and Catelyn have this difficult discussion afterwards, because it's all wrapped up together. Ice is part of Stark power. Like, Rob needs that back, not just because it's his dad's sword and he wants it, but because that's what the Lord of Winterfell looks like, is the guy with that big sword, and he looks a little less with the sword he's got in his lap right now. And Jamie's status matters very personally to Cersei, as we see in Tyrion's chapters, but as we also see in this one, it matters to Rickard Karstark too. Like, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to separate these things. You can see that, like, Lannister withdrawal, for example, that's primarily a concern of the Riverlords. The Northerners aren't worrying for the moment about their lands being attacked. Instead, as we see in Bran's A Clash of Kings chapters, what they're interested in is their pieces of the independence pie. So they're probably more concerned about you know, not paying taxes and having that take effect as soon as possible. It's a complex series of interlocking interests, and it's made all the more difficult by something Rob is trying to get at with Catelyn. He can't quite put it into words, but it's like 
He's made his name in a war he's now trying to end. So how does he end it while holding on to any of his power? He has to preserve his reputation. He has to preserve his image, the trappings of power, as Melisandre calls them, in order to maintain control of his realm during the peacetime to follow. And for me, the, the ultimate takeaway from Rob's peace proposal is that creating a peace is difficult, not merely because some people love bloodshed and pillaging, although they do, but because peace isn't actually automatically the default state of man. It has to be made, and non-sadists will sometimes choose war over peace because it serves their interests. And I think you can see the critique in The Clash of Kings as being of a system that values those interests over the lives and well-beings of individuals and the people at large, rather than purely being a critique of the obvious bad actors like Tywin Lannister. It's not that Rob is a thoughtless, warmongering bro who doesn't particularly care about getting his sisters back. He does. It's that he's a good man with bad options. Within Westerosi norms, Rob is doing his best, but, I mean, are we meant to nod and accept that or interpret it as a critique of those norms? But then on the other hand, does that mean it's Rob's responsibility to break them? Should he not be trying to operate in good faith with Cleos or with Tyrion? What about the phrase? I think it's, it's very complicated. I do think in terms of the overall narrative piece, there is a central impossibility in here. The Lannisters don't have Arya. Like, even <laughs> yeah. if he could get all of the Northern Lords and all of the River Lords to, like, agree to this incredibly unequal exchange, the Lannisters don't have the goods. And, you know, again, the, the like, the problem is, they're also bad actors. Catelyn, you know, is is very wise throughout this chapter, but if she has one fault, it's that she has a tendency to prioritize the personal aspects of peace to such an extent that it potentially jeopardizes the necessary political framework. Like, Rickard Karstark doesn't give a shit about Arya and Sansa. Most of the Northern Lords don't that much either. The River Lords, likewise. And, you know, the, the problem is that, like, you know, if we go all the way back to, like, the Inn at the Crossroads, right? Catelyn thinks that people are going to, like, stand up and do what they're supposed to in this system and that she can rely on that. The problem is these aren't chess pieces. These are people with their own interests and their own ideas, and you have to bring them along, and part of bringing them along is in giving them something positive to hold on to. Um, so, you know, as as you sort of say, the real dilemma that Catelyn and Rob are caught on is not so much that, like, Rob doesn't want to. It's that as much as they might want to trade his crown for his sisters, he can't get back his sisters if he doesn't have the crown. As we're going to say with Tyrion too, power is a shadow on a wall. Power is a trick. Power is something you hold up in front of someone just as long as you need it to. And as you say, Catelyn is prioritizing the personal aspects of peacemaking in a way that damages Rob's ability to hold the Lannisters to their feet to the fire and make sure they stick to the rules. We're going to see that when she frees Jaime, mm -hmm. that even in the, in the best case scenario where they had Arya and both Tyrion and Jaime made good on this deal, she has made Rob look so bad and pissed off malcontents <laughs> in his camp so much that he's going to have just a harder time keeping everyone together to enforce that piece and to carry it out. The other aspect, too, that we have here is we have, as, as, as Emma was talking about, we have a coalition in place here. We have got different lords with different values and different things that they're prioritizing. And something that I think is kind of a, another contrast between the Lannisters is that as much as we criticized all of the Western lords for Westerman lords for having this kind of Tywin's got the right idea. We're just going to follow whatever Tywin says. You would never see like Lord Brax like walk out of a, a council session with 
Tywin Lannister. He's got ab the absolute loyalty of his lords in place. Rob has a more tenuous grasp on the loyalty of his lords. He, you know, Rickard Karstark can walk out of a council meeting. Edmure Tully can maybe possibly disobey an order that Rob Stark gives him. Maybe possibly we'll talk about that in the Storm of Swords. And this this kind of presents an interesting contrast between the two sides. I think ultimately we favor the Stark side and that they have a they get that Rob Stark gives his lords a little more leeway to operate within the understandings of that and of the orders that he gives them. But that does have drawbacks as we're finding out here. Completely agreed. And all of that gets filtered through the lens of our POV of Catelyn as this political observer. Everything we see Rob do, and then Renly, and then Stannis, and then Edmure, is filtered through Catelyn's complex and well-versed political mind. And her job, as she sees it, is to peel back the surface layer of everyone and everything she encounters and report the truth she finds back to Rob and, therefore, the reader. So her political observations aren't incidental. They're the driving force behind her story, as they were in A Game of Thrones and as they will be again in A Storm of Swords. As Stephen was saying, Catelyn is, is embodying this kind of conventional wisdom of how this power structure is supposed to work is part of what makes the Red Wedding just this perfect, terrible ending. Like, what could, what better climax could there be for such a character than to realize, as if in a nightmare, that they have just fatally misread every social cue? And that's what all comes collapsing down on her head of the twins. Here, she's in a kind of liminal state. She has some genuine insights, Cleos's fear and Ricard's anger and so on, but... She's also aware of the limits of her perceptions. I think you can see that in this chapter. She studied Theon Greyjoy's sly smile, wondering what it meant. That young man had a way of looking as though he knew some secret jest that only he was privy to. Catelyn had never liked it. Or uh, Catelyn Stark wished she could read the thoughts that hid behind each face, each furrowed brow and pair of tightened lips. Like, that's a relatable impulse to just want to, want to just be able to know exactly what they're thinking. But put that thought in the hands of someone like Bloodraven or Euron... And you've, that's, that's the thought from which police states are born. So I think you can see that so much of A Clash of Kings, as we've said, is George trying to tunnel to the core of power to express what it is underneath all the trappings, if there's anything there at all. Catelyn and Rob trying to enforce their wills follows up on Varys' riddle and the young Walder's game and Stannis grousing over the poor wages of the letter of the law. Catelyn's trying to find a space for Rob somewhere in this, and... As we've been suggesting, there's this kind of trade-off between putting your best foot forward, you know, outreaching your hand, and the possibility that it might get cut off. Like, Catelyn is, is neither detached from her emotions as she goes through this process, nor is she completely dominated by them. It's this perilous place in between, and I really think that's how she ends up freeing Jamie at book's end, that she's got part of the political motivation and part of like, the per personal desperate panic need. Like when she says living men had gone south and cold bones would return. Ned had the tru truth of it, she thought. His place was at Winterfell. He said as much, but would I hear him? No. Go, I told him. You must be Robert's hand for the good of our house, for the sake of our children. My doing. Mine. No other. Like, that is not a rational assessment of any mistakes Catelyn may have made. That is the mindset of a character caught in the middle of a tragic downfall and desperately trying to just find a way to understand it, give it some context. I think, you know, what you're saying about the fate, Stephen, yeah. I think what Catelyn fears most is not that she or Ned or Rob has doomed her family. It's that unknowable fate has done so. It's that none of them actually are in control. That's what she's really afraid of. Hence, we get this yet another futile conversation about the meaning of the Red Messenger. And the Blackfish is right. It's a banner of blood, not of any one side. And that Catelyn wants to make it one side because she wants to give it this framework. Catelyn takes the blame for that blood above and beyond her own actions because then... Her actions have meaning, but that, that just contributes to her downward spiral because she starts blaming herself for everything. If she doomed them, uh, then maybe she could save them, please. Not all my pretty ones, and she just holds on to that so desperately. We're going to see that much more, of course, when we get to, you know, the supposed death of Bran and Rickon, but 
It affects her relationship to Rob here. And yeah, as I said in the Game of Thrones, this is one of my favorite relationships in the series. There's so much affection between them there. But there's also just a lot of strain and worry. They're each other's pillars that they lean on, but they really kind of find it easier to be apart, as we're going to see throughout the rest of this book. Rob knows that Catelyn is intelligent, and she knows that he's a prodigy, but she really can't deal with how quickly he's grown up, and he can't deal with how well she knows that he's putting on a front. Like, he's fine, he's, he's trying to make peace with this person he has to play, but Catelyn knows it's a front, and he's not comfortable with that. So yeah, and it's no wonder he kind of loses his temper on poor Edmure, and it's no wonder that she feels the need to visit her own father right afterwards, because it feels to me like they're in part, they're turning to surrogates to, to deal with their emotions about each other because of just how raw the feelings between them are in the wake of Ned's death and the wake of his crowning. It's just, they're haunted by this collision of youth and death. Like she looks at him and he's so young, but he's got the beard, and then she goes to her dying father and remembers when he was in his prime. And, you know, as, as you've talked about before about Stephen, Catelyn has this kind of sense of incoming tragedy long oh, before yeah. her rational brain can pick up on it you know and, and in part that's just martin throwing in little clues about you know my heart is turned to stone etc etc oh but it's sure, all, sure. You know, it, like she does feel a little bit more like a tragic heroine of like classical greek tragedy in that way that like always has this sense that i am responsible in some way and at the same time not responsible i remember when i was uh, God, a, a freshman, I wrote a paper about, like, this weird inconsistency in, in Homer between, like, are the gods all-powerful or not? Uh, and it reminded me a lot of that, that, like, which is more comforting, right? The idea that we, you know, individually are, you know, totally responsible and therefore totally at fault, or the idea that it's, like, all out of our hands, and then your only hope is that it's in the hands of something benevolent. But yeah, I, I think it's absolutely true that Catelyn is an incredibly smart political observer. And the sad thing is, you know, the whole thing about, you know, kings don't want mothers. Like, she's a little bit of a Cassandra figure in that, like, she's usually going to be in the right on most of her, her calls. But for one reason or another, people aren't going to listen to her. Of all of Rob's advisors... I think Catelyn's the best political mind there. Sure, he's got great military advisors in the form of Brendan Tully, great John Umber, veterans of wars. But I don't see like a masterful political mind at work in Rob's camp besides Catelyn Stark. And he's kind of being like pushing her aside and pushing her opinions aside. Is, is this a mistake on Rob's part? I mean, there is that gendered element. Like, I don't think we can run away, you know, just as sort of Catelyn says, like, you know, girls aren't important enough, huh? And you kind of have to sort of say, yes, Westeros is a patriarchal society, like totally the case. It's also the case that just as, you know, Stannis is often in the right, but perhaps not always making the most persuasive case for himself. Catelyn sometimes has a problem in terms of being able to convince people of stuff because like she often wants to get in the last word or she's annoyed that, you know, she thinks that someone's acting childish. And that any anyone who's been a, a, a teenage son of, of, of a strong-willed mother will know that there's, like, even yep. the <laughs> most you try to, like, avoid that, you know, get off my back, mom. Like, that's there, too. But it's not just Rob, because, like, Renly is going to have the same reaction. It's everybody in this book. It's Rob, it's Renly, it's Stannis, it's Edmure. And I think that gets yeah. to how, how, you know, these these powerful shining men leading men into combat 
are kind of regressing into childhood a lot of the time and working out emotions and stresses from there. I mean, Stannis and Renly are just having the fight over, you took my toys, but you started yeah. it. And Edmure is very clearly just trying to work through the fact that Hoster never hugged him. And, you know, they're trying to be glib. It's genuine pain for all these people. But the problem is they're gambling thousands of people's lives yeah. on it. And Catelyn can't, she can't quite believe it's this Although, petty. Although, I, I will say, like, you know, it's also the case that, like, she's dealing with her own emotional thing. And that oh, she's, like, true. trying to compress it so much, like, compartmentalize, 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 until it explodes. Oh, for sure. She's a, she's a ticking time bomb on her own her own merits, and she doesn't really take that into account. But I think there's something going on with her incredulity over the course of these books, where it's not that loses she... Loses patience, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She loses patience, and she understands, like, mistakes being made, but she can't quite believe the motivations for a lot of these people are this base and this short-sighted. She, there's this constant, like, running thing of, like, we're supposed to be better than this. I thought my dad taught me that our entire class were supposed to be smart, intelligent craftsmen of our, of our approach, and we're just yelling at each other, this can't be real. And, uh, you know, you don't, you don't see that so much here, but only because she's kind of nudged Rob in this direction. And you can see her kind of worrying, oh, is, does he does he just want to fight? Does he just look, is he Ricard Karstark? Is he just looking for that kind of out? And how do I how do I nudge him in the, in the proper direction? And I think Rob wants her gone. I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to his overall motivation and, and, and kind of, because, as you know, he does have a plan, as well as we'll talk about more in a little bit. And as we see him hint at in Catelyn, too, it's not like he doesn't have a thought in his head about what he wants to do. But I think Catelyn is, for better or for worse, she's she's unable to keep that incredulity out of her voice. And there is a gendered element to that in which a lot of people in Westeros' world and our world are very much less likely to take the exact kind of the exact same criticism coming from a woman versus a man will just raise hackles more. So I think that I think all those elements are going in with Rob. I agree with you guys. I appreciate you getting your perspective on it for sure. So I think it's, I just think it's interesting that the dynamic that we have here and how the crown's kind of changing Rob. And that kind of, kind of does take us into the strategic situation in the Riverlands. And because we're in kind of a, we're kind of in an interesting spot in the narrative. You know, how Stark, as I said before, is appearing ascendant at the end of a Game of Thrones, scoring those massive victories, massive victories at the Whispering Wood in the Battle of the Camps. So it's interesting at this very moment of greatest triumph that Brennan Tully arrives sounding the alarm, and he's got good fucking reason to sound the alarm. But first, obviously, Brennan Tully is going to talk about the positives first, and we will also talk about them. We got the Northmen are still in the field as a united force for the moment, with two major components at River Run and the Twins. Then you've got more minorly, the Carl Vance and Mark Piper have won minor victories against the Lannister Marauders who are invading their lands. And best of all, Beric Dondarrion is doing R'hllor's work and fighting a guerrilla war against the Lannisters. You know, this is kind of this great classic guerrilla warfare stuff. Lightning fast raids, melting back in the forest, uh, being resurrected from the dead, and then coming back to kill the Lannisters. <laughs> classic guerrilla classic Robin stuff is what Hood I'm saying. Stuff. Right, right. <laughs> I'm just happy that George kind of read his insurgency manuals and kind of read some of the histories behind that as well. But then there's all the negatives, and there's quite a lot of negatives, as, as Brendan is going to talk about. First, you've got the Riverlords. As Catelyn notes at the beginning of this chapter, Edmure requested the Riverlords be dispatched back to their holdings to defend them against Lannister marauders in the form of Gregor Clegane, Amory Lorch, and the Cohoric sellsword who I hate so much. Yeah, that motherfucker Vargo Hope. He's trying to keep the Lancers foraging parties from disrupting civilian life to include that all-important task of, you know, harvesting food with summers at summer's end. The problem, though, as Brendan Tully is going to point out, and the Catelyn will also point out, is that the Riverlords are scattering to defend their homelands has allowed Tywin to pick them off one by one. And though the Riverlords will come back to Edmure's side after Gregor Clegane and his band rejo rejoin Tywin for his attempted crossing the Ruby Ford, and Amory Lorch goes to ground at Harrenhal, the losses are 
pretty significant, as, as Steve, I think you've written about in your chapter analysis well, of this chapter. Well, we think. It's it's <laughs> not clear. It is, it is, there's a reason that there is a common tag on Tumblr, you know, Germ can't math. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even Elio has, like, talked about this. We never get, like, an initial number for how many soldiers did the River Lords have at the beginning. We don't know how many were lost when Edmure got defeated at River Run. We know that, like, a certain number come back, but it's, like, way less than it should be. I'm sometimes suspicious that, similar to with the, the invention of the Hill Clans, Martin is, like, looking for, you know, numbers to keep in his pockets. So that, like, you know, when the Riverlands rise up, you know, there's there's people to actually do the rising up. <laughs> you know, the the one thing I do think is interesting is, like, with Edmure's decision to send the Riverlords back, it, it, it strikes me as, like, in of a piece with his earlier strategies, which is often he doesn't really think about the Riverlands as a unit, but as, like, individual little fiefdoms. And, you know, the, That's a good the point. thing that I was thinking to myself is like, okay, you know, speaking counterinsurgency, right? Sweep and clear, right? You've got this area of the Trident, you know, marked by River Run, the Twins, and the Ruby Ford. You should be able to hold those and just make sure that no Lannister can cross. And then you, you know, push everyone else back towards Hall, which incidentally is good for your side because, you know, you can only steal so much food from the area around Heron Hall. You're going to run out. Uh, and that was another one of my numbers things that came up, uh, I think, in an Arya chapter once she gets to Heron Hall. It's just like, how did Tywin's army eat? <laughs> like, they, they should have, you know, been starving. Um, anyway, but the, the one sort of tricky thing to me is, like, it, we're given the sense that, like, oh, shit, things are really, really bad without really having to nail down here's exactly how bad it is and here are exactly the resources we have left. And, you know, that can make for some sort of tricky back-of-the-numbers calculations. For sure. It's more impressionistic, as you yeah. say. I love that image uh, Brynden gives us of the Riverlands are awash in blood and flame all around the god's eye. It feels very much like the, the Red Comet, really. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that kind of giant eye in the sky that's surrounded by blood and flame. And that's just, yeah, that's just more the impression of just the, the you know, not just war, but the land itself dying. Like Raventree Hollow, just a scorched desert now. Heron Hall, as we'll get to, is this horrible cursed castle in the middle of a wasteland. It's it's the Riverlands, this kind of land of fertility and relative, like, you know, the breadbasket outside the reach is drying up and dying. And that's what the Tullys kind of sense, especially with Hoster going with it. And that's kind of emotionally what they're responding to. But yeah, these strategic issues reflect political problems. This is the difficulty of forging a single polity out of North and Riverlands, is that they genuinely have different interests. And while Brynden can point to, say, hey, that was a stupid decision to let everyone go, what do you tell those Riverlords to keep them with you while their lands are being burnt and their people are being killed? What does is, what is Rob offer them to keep them there, and how is that going to impact what he's offering the Northern Lords? There's no real easy answers here. Yeah, I mean, Edmure's going to note that it would go ill if the Northmen left, and he's he's absolutely right. I mean, the Northmen are in the field as the only united force in the Riverlands, with the Riverlords are scattering to defend their own holdings. because And they're able to do that because, you know, their homes aren't getting torched by enemies. Yeah, of course. So then that takes us to Roose Bolton and what's going on up at the Twins. So we get kind of a sense of what's going up there. We'll get more about that in later Arya chapters. So Roose is up at the Twins with this host of mixed fray soldiers and Northmen. And it's interesting, I think it's at this point that Roose Bolton was likely betrothed and married to Fat 
Walter Frey, mm-hmm. as Roos will later receive letters from Fat Walter Frey after he takes Heron Hall. And the primary purpose of this force is to, I guess, block Tywin from moving into the north, something that was talked about in Game of Thrones. But beyond that, Roos has, has he's got a lot of flexibility as command. Like we talked about how I, I talked about how Rob is giving a lot of his lords leeway to kind of make their own decisions here. But I do kind of wonder, is Rob giving Roos too much flexibility as command here? Is he giving him any direction as to what he wants Roos to do while he's at the Twins besides block any entry of the Lancers into the north? Is that actually a bad thing, what Rob is doing with Roos here? Yeah, if, if there's sort of one open flank to the, you know, the, the trident, it's that the fords at the Ruby Ford should be the place at which you, you establish a defensive line. That, that way you can use the rivers as interior lines and all that good stuff. And like, Roos isn't doing that. And he's smart enough to do it. Oh, oh, absolutely. Because he'll do it later. <laughs> like when it when it suits his interests. So like if there's, you know, one sort of shortcoming, I think, in Rob as a, a military commander, it's that like he's very new to being a theater commander. Like he's really good at leading an army, sending it wherever it needs to go to have the biggest strategic impact. But like. You know, he's not the kind of person who's like sending a raven every single day to the twins saying, you need to hold the fords. I told you to hold the fords. When are you leaving? (laughs) Now, some of that has to do with communications issues on a practical level, unless Rob is willing to go to the twins himself to find out what's happening. There are certain limits on his abilities to actually, especially with a feudal army, to like double check on everyone. We don't have a, a, you know, a chief of staff. You know, all these things that we sort of assume about uh, modern militaries. But, like, yeah, it's it's a major problem that Roos Bolton is kind of out here deciding whether he, there are <laughs> orders that he'd like to follow and when. And I, and I think, too, like, this also speaks to Roos Bolton as well, who's always going to keep his own soldiers away from danger in order, in order to preserve them for a, yes. another cause down the road, which of course is going to be eventually the taking of Heron Hall and eventually going to be the Red Wedding after that. So I talked a little bit earlier about how there's a unity among the Northmen at the moment, but there is some dissension there, Rickard Karstark in particular. You know, he wanted vengeance on the Lancers, not peace, so he's at odds with Rob's ostensible desire for peace. So those are kind of the positives and negatives in the friendly forces situation for Rob. Let's kind of transition now to what Ren and Tully talks about, Tywin, what Tywin is doing. So the main Lancer host that is still in the field is Tywin's army of some, let's call it 18 to 22,000 men or so. Yeah, Again, maybe as low as 16, but who knows? Right. Yeah, George is bad with numbers. Let's just go with that hashtag. Uh, Jamie's army is, of course, mostly destroyed. Two-thirds of it is. But Tywin remains and he's doing damage in the Riverlands. So he's got his main host picking the land clean in and around Hall itself, depriving the small folk and Rob's army of food. He's also brutally but expertly using Grigal Gain and Amory Lorsch to both raid along the Triton and west along the Blackwater. Also, he's got Vargo Hote and the Bloody Mumbers doing, you know, all sorts of war crimes as well. And this is kind of interesting. I do wonder whether this is a point where Tywin is looking at Vargo Hote as his kind of scapegoat that he can eventually, like, kind of shift all the blame for all the war crimes on later on. It's like, oh, it wasn't Lannister guys who did this. It was this sellsword, this Cahoric sellsword from from all the way over in Essos who's coming here and just despoiling the lands. And he's the one we really should blame as he's going to be doing in a Storm of Swords. Ultimately, Tywin's tactic is to block any advance on King's Landing while drawing the river 
Warlords away from Rob is, is kind of working. But these ultimately were delaying tactics on Tywin's part. He knows that he's outnumbered. He knows that the River Lords and the North combined can defeat him militarily. So he's planning on using his force multiplier in the form of Hall to even the odds, as well as tempt Rob to march against him at Hall. And why does Tywin want Rob to march on him in Hall? Well, because he has another army coming into formation in the Westerlands led by Sir Stafford Lannister. I, I know we might have different perspectives on this, but my read is that Tywin wants to scatter the River Lords, which we know, deprive Rob of the men of, to take Hall by force of arms, while pinning Roose Bolton at the Twins, hence why Lannister raids have, quote, almost reached the Twins, and then force Rob into marching against him at Hall, then bring up Stafford's army to take Rob in the rear while the King in the North besieges Hall. These are differences of, of emphasis more than overall analysis. I see what Tyne is trying to do is to create a win-win scenario, or rather to return to the win-win scenario that he was, like, right at the beginning of the War of Five Kings, when, like, he and Jaime both had their armies in the field. Because, as you said, either Rob marches on Harrenhal and scatters his strength in the process, maybe lets Tywin take him out, but certainly reduces his army as a threat that Tywin has to deal with, or Tob, Rob waits, and Stafford's new army restores the Lannisters to that initial strategic situation of pinning their enemy between two armies. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think like Stafford could move in on River Run from the west, and Tywin could come from the east, sort of thing, and meet a River Run. Yeah, there's a lot of flexibility in where it happens, but the main thing is he wants his two armies to their one. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. So it could be at Harrenhal that he wants him to march on Harrenhal. Again, we don't get Tywin's perspective exactly what he wants Robb Stark to do. These are all suppositions by Brendan Tully as he's talking Catelyn through what his scouts are observing. You know, it's also co- probably not totally coincidental that this is basically the same battle plan that Tywin has against Stannis at the Blackwater, pinning Stannis's already engaged army against the river itself and against the castle walls, while then using his mobile force to take them in the rear. So with all of these troubling tidings, what's our boy? hero supposed to do? Well, open up a third front on Tywin Lannister is south, of course. You know, I talked about this in my opening thoughts about this chapter. Here's why I think Catelyn is acting pragmatically and kind of shrewdly in her idea to treat with Renly. You know, with Rob and his host to Tywin's west, Roost to his north, forcing Tywin to fight to his south would almost certainly result in Tywin's defeat. Renly has, well, he's got about 40,000 men at Bitterbridge. He's got 100,000 men in total, as Catelyn is going to discover in her next chapter. And with the combined force, Renly has got Tywin 5 to 1 without the Northmen and the Riverlanders. Adding in the combined total force, like in a magical situation where all the sides join together, Tywin is outnumbered 7, 8, maybe even 9 to 1. It's the perfect military solution to the problem of Tywin Lannister. The problem, though, is... The politics. You know, Renly is going to want Rob to set aside his crown, something that Catelyn notes at the end of this chapter, sort of. And then in Catelyn's second chapter, our lady hero will start the chapter thinking about how she doesn't want to play the diplomat because she has nothing really to offer Renly. Rob is not about to give up his crown. And then there's the issue of status, Stannis status. We're going to get super in depth on the kind of dynamic that Catelyn is going to have with Stannis and Renly come Catelyn's third chapter. But it's interesting how Stannis doesn't come up at all in this chapter. You know, back in Catelyn's final Game of Thrones chapter, there was some discussion about whether they should throw him with Stannis. But why wouldn't Catelyn think maybe we should go for Stannis in this situation? 
Well, I mean, I think there's a pragmatic side. One of, you know, Renly's got the army that's closest and the closest in hand. But there's also a second factor, which is even more important, I would say. Stannis hasn't officially declared his kingship. I mean, this happens officially in A Clash of Kings Davos 2, Davos 1 rather, a few weeks down the road. There's only a few people outside of Dragonstone who have any inkling that Stannis is the king or has declared himself as such. You know, we talked about in the prologue about how Crescent meets up with Davos and Davos reports meeting with some of the Stormlanders, but he meets them secretly. That's the key word, secretly. Given that perspective, I don't think Catelyn really did anything wrong here by saying that they should go to Renly instead of Stannis. As far as she and everyone else is in the Riverlands is concerned, Stannis hasn't declared for himself, but Renly has. A bird in the hand, folks. They're all going for Renly. Yeah, I agree there. I mean, it shows how important it is that Renly declared himself uh, before Stannis. Who knows how the Stormlords might have handled it politically if it had been the other way around. And yes, as you were kind of getting at talking about Catelyn's reluctance going to Renly, I don't, I don't really fully understand the nature of Catelyn's diplomatic mission here. And maybe you gentlemen can enlighten me. <laughs> like at the end of this chapter, it's implied that her her primary goal is to encourage Renly to get his ass in gear. That what they want out of Renly is to force Tywin to leave Harrenhal. But that doesn't really come up at all when she gets to Renly. And of course, they're interrupted by Stannis' arrival at Storm's End. But I'm just, I'm not clear on what exactly Catelyn's best case scenario here is, what Rob and Catelyn are hoping will emerge. Like, what can Renly, what can either Bar- Baratheon brother offer them in a world where Rob stays king in the north and of the Trident? Because, as you say, Catelyn kind of implies that Ren- Rob's going to need to give up his crown, but at this point in the story, he's not going to go for that, and she knows it. It's interesting, right? I think, like, when we get to Catelyn 2, like, Renly's like, so, when is Rob going to march on Harrenhal and open up a front for me to tie Tywin down so I could take King's Landing? Yeah, they both got the same idea. Yeah. Right. So they're like, they're like, wait, I thought you were going to go to Harrenhal to take on Tywin and I was going to take on the Westerlands army. You could see like Catelyn shifting her perspective in the chapters that she's dealing with Renly. She goes there first, I think, with this idea that, you know, Renly can be king of the south. So Rob can be king of the north. And then when she gets there, she's like, well, Rob can give up his crown and, you know, maybe that's going to work out. And then she kind of comes to this idea, like, maybe we all just call a great council after she, yeah. she, she learns about, you know, Cersei's incest with uh, with Jamie, and that's where the children are coming from. And then finally, she's like, we should just stop fighting altogether. Like, this is this is so fucking stupid, like what we're doing right now. And Cersei is laughing herself breathless as a line she's going to say in Catelyn 3. So I, I, yeah, I think you're right, Emmett. I think, like, there's... There's nothing really that they can offer besides like some sort of combined alliance to bring the Lannisters down. But Renly's not going to go for that because, simply put, he's more in, in it for more than just simply bringing the Lannisters down. He's in it to put his terrorist ass on the Iron Throne. Well, the tricky thing, though, and this is why I think Catelyn is a little bit uh, like uncertain and changing about this. Like, she doesn't know what he wants. Like, they, they have not hmm. opened up diplomatic communications at all before this moment that's true they know that he's proclaimed himself king so you can make certain guesses from that but like how much does he care about the north how much does he care about the riverlands how much does like he really you know is he going to do anything about tywin or is he a complete paper tiger and that's why like you know i i think what you see in in catlin is like she's going there almost as like an exploratory mission it's like see what this guy wants what are his resources? What is his agenda? And see if there's any basis for cooperation. And it is interesting that they don't mention Stannis. And I do think, like, the first mover, last mover thing is really real. Because, okay, Stannis only has 5,000 men in a big, big army. Uh, sorry, in a big, big navy. But, like, if potentially they can do a deal and says, look, you attack King's Landing right now. Force Tywin, Tywin to march south. We'll hit him on the road. 
and then come join you at the walls of King's Landing. That's another viable scenario, but it's like you actually have to sit down with people and work out what it is they want. And that's why, like, one of the things that's going to play a huge role here is just time and distance and technology. Stannis hasn't issued a public letter yet. The Storm Lords know, but they're not telling anyone that, like, he wants to be king. Renly's, he's done public politics in a very geographically located way. If you're a River Lord or a Storm Lord, you probably know what he's about. But, like, it's it's not the case where, like, you can pick up a telephone. But I, I do want to say one of the things that I love about all of this discussion is, like, we're all talking about, you know, oh, what's the third option? Rob has his own third option. That, like, all this chapter, Catelyn is figuring out, how do I stop my son from marching on Harrenhal? And she doesn't realize, because he's being a teenage boy and doesn't want to tell her, he's got a whole nother plan. He's got no intention of marching on Harrenhal. And his plan is going to be remarkably successful at, again, reshaping the broader strategic map. He's going to get Tywin to completely abandon this rather successful defensive Fabian strategy. No one saw it coming, not even his mom. Exactly. Yeah, it's a good point about about Renly being kind of an unknown because he's also just so young. That that's part of what Catelyn gets at. Like when she last saw Renly, he was a kid. So he's not this kind of known political quantity that people like know Stannis's temperament and know what kind of guy he is just because he's barely younger than Robert. Renly's been an adult for a handful of years. He certainly made an impression on the people around him. But for, for Catelyn and for, for most of the Stark cause, he's a stranger. And yeah, that's that's definitely true about how, yeah, the irony is that no one marches on Harrenhal, except the one person that's not brought up marching on Harrenhal, who is Roose Bolton. <laughs> we talk about Rob marching on Harrenhal, or, you know, Renly's going to march on Harrenhal, but it's the, the army that no one, no one sees coming is the one that actually takes the castle. So that's great. I think that is absolutely great. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this greater strategic, political, military conversation about what's going on in the Riverlands. And I think it about closes out for the depth portion of this episode. To get into some of the foreshadowing groundwork, the first thing we want to talk about a little bit is that you could potentially, you could potentially argue that this whole chapter is kind of a preview of Catelyn sending Jamie, you know, at the end of A Clash of Kings and the start of A Storm of Swords. She brings up this potential trade for Arya and Sansa to Rob. Cleos Frey, he's also going to be there too. Rickard Karstark, also going to be super fucking pissed. In this chapter, we are getting the official peace deal done in the quote, morning light, as Emmett, you put so well and in, in talking about the depth portion, in front of dozens of witnesses. Lots of people are there. And at book's end, it's just going to be an unofficial peace deal done in the secret of midnight with just Brienne, Catelyn, Jamie, and a sword. You can see the, the mechanics are breaking down. The process Catelyn wants to believe in has just kind of been reduced to that, that she wants to get buy-in from everybody. But when she can't, you know, she's she's not above going this secret way. And, you know, Stephen was talking earlier about doing the right thing even when it fails you. And the kind of the flip side of that is if you see doing the right thing isn't working for you, well, you have the temptation to go, well, fuck it. <laughs> then I'm going to do the wrong thing because clearly the system isn't working properly. That's, you know, a huge part of Stannis' story is that him telling everyone who comes he comes across, look, I did the right thing my entire career. And then the entire realm laughed at me. So, you know, shadow baby here. <laughs> Kinslaying there. You guys didn't follow the rules. Why should I? And there, I think there's a there's a similar uh, tension going on with Catelyn in regards to how she wants to make this piece happen. Some other great foreshadowing. I think there's just a bunch of setup setup packed into Rob's terms. Like this is where George is reminding us about ice and the two sisters. Don't forget the two sisters. Right, exactly. The two sisters they totally have. And Ned's bones, the latter will be waiting for Catelyn when she returns to Riverrun, because that's the part Tyrion keeps immediately, because it doesn't cost him anything to do so. 
George is also, of course, reminding us about Tion Frey and Willem Lannister, whose deaths will in part represent the failure of the hope for peace kindled here. That's one of those signs in the Storm of Swords that it's all kind of unraveling from within. So a lot of what gets set up as hopeful here, George is setting it up there to get kind of dashed later on as things really start turning ill for the Stark cause. And, and remind me, in, in Storm, after Tion Frey and Willem Lannister are murdered by Rickard Karstark and his men, is it's right after that that Rob Stark immediately releases Martin Lannister. Is that the, the kid's name that I'm remembering correctly? That in order to get yeah. this kid like out of River Run as quickly as possible, yeah. this sort of thing. Like this, the, like we're... It's interesting that we have this perspective here where, like you said, like being done openly in the light before now, like it's kind of this chaotic thing where we have to like we have to release prisoners right now. Or they're all going to get fucking murdered. So let's like do this right now. Like there's there's the strategic insight is here to, is to save Sansa's life, obviously, but also to ensure that we're not having reciprocity in terms from the Lannisters uh, in, in a storm of swords. So I think like, you know, clash is like much more ordered. This is what we're going to do. And then storm shows us the chaos of what happens when our plans start falling to pieces. Yeah, that's well said. I agree completely. So then we also get our second mention of Beric Dondarrion in Clash of Kings. Our first, of course, was in the prologue. As with Jamie, George is doing a really good job of reminding us throughout Clash who this guy is and why he matters. And he's not going to appear in this book. And this is really interesting about Beric Dondarrion. Like, he's almost like this kind of wraith that kind of is out in the shadows, out on the periphery of the story. But he's still there. Everyone is super interested in what's going on with him. You know, it kind of makes me wonder whether George had written a significant portion of maybe maybe a storm of swords by the time he's finished a clash of Kings and he starts to go back maybe in the editing and rewriting process and starts putting a lot more stuff about Beric Dondarrion in there. I mean, we know that Arya's has like what 15 chapters in a storm of swords. It's certainly possible that George at least had some of that written before completing a clash of Kings. I think it's also possible too, that George had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do with Beric Dondarrion in Arya's storyline in a storm of swords. So he wants to make sure that we uh, like know very strongly about who this guy is and what he's doing in, in, in the Riverlands. The thing that's really interesting about Beric Dondarrion is he's absolutely cropping up all the time. It's People are talking about him. He's doing stuff off page. But what's interesting is that, like, unlike Stannis in A Game of Thrones, there's a very specific literary model. He's a storytell figure, right? Everyone else is, like, dealing with this realpolitik and this is goddamn Robin Hood running around <laughs> outfoxing Little John and the Sheriff of Nottingham. It's great because it pops up all the time like you hear in Arya's chapters. Like, first of all, it's the only thing that the Mountains men care about, right? Where is Beric Dondarrion? And then they get, you know, she gets to Harrenhal and it's all anyone talks about is like, there's this guy. He's dead. No, he's not. But this guy said he killed him. But he, you know, then he killed somebody else later. And it's like he's driving everyone nuts. <laughs> You're building this image of Douglas Fairbanks, Errol Flynn on the film, right? He is like the young, sexy Robin Hood. And so you get this whole image built up in your mind of like who this Dundarian guy is going to be. And then you're like, oh, shit. He's like zombie Jesus. You know, when you actually see him, he's just like beaten to shit and he's coming back from the dead and that's the reason that you can't stop him is like god's on his side it's like such a wonderful left turn i love it it's great As i think you've said about it, it's just uh, the rare case where the legend is the reality is even more incredible than the legend yeah. it's like 
you might read this the first time through or like maybe uh, as a kind of more cynical reader and think Beric's going to be less than this great image, but it's actually there's a layer that you never would have expected. And yeah, that's, that, that is what makes it so satisfying. Yeah. Speaking of elements that are coming up uh, later in Arya storyline specifically, uh, Hall was mentioned a few times in book one, but my very favorite location in the world of Ice and Fire is really cemented in our minds here. And Jeff was very restrained and didn't read the entire uh, passage of it in a synopsis, but I'm going to have to do it. Hall. Every child of the Trident knew the tales told of Hall, the vast fortress that King Heron the Black had raised beside the waters of God's Eye three hundred years past, when the Seven Kingdoms had been Seven Kingdoms, and the Riverlands were ruled by the Ironmen from the islands. In his pride, Heron had desired the highest hall and tallest towers in all Westeros. Forty years it had taken, rising like a great shadow on the shore of the lake while Heron's armies plundered his neighbors for stone, lumber, gold, and workers. Thousands of captives died in his quarries, chained to his sledges, or laboring on his five colossal towers. Men froze by winter and sweltered in summer. Weirwoods that had stood three thousand years were cut down for beams and rafters. Heron had beggared the riverlands and the Iron Islands alike to ornament his dream, and when at last Hall stood complete on the very day King Heron took up residence, Egan the Conqueror had come ashore at King's Landing. Catelyn could remember old Nan, hearing old Nan tell the story to her own children back at Winterfell. And King Heron learned that thick walls and high towers are small use against dragons. The tale always ended, for dragons fly. Heron and all his line had perished in the fires that engulfed his monstrous fortress, and every house that had held Harrenhal since had come to misfortune. Strong it might be, but it was a dark place, and cursed. Ooh, that's just just perfect setup for everything Harrenhal is, both politically and magically. You get the sense of it just being this ridiculous folly that Heron beggared the Riverlands, and then as soon as he completed it, this power swept into Westeros that made everything he'd done completely irrelevant. That's just, you know, that resonates when you think about Tywin, or when you think about the struggle after Rob's death to make his kingdom come back as reality, and then you get that line thrown in there, weirwoods that had stood 3,000 years were cut down for the beams and rafters, just George nudging you in the ribs about where the, the Harrenhal curse stuff actually probably comes from. <laughs> And it's just, Harrenhal just hangs over Clash of Kings, like an inverse of Beric, long before you meet him, long before you actually go to the castle, because it's just this this symbol of everything going wrong with the Riverlands, and obviously I'll talk a lot more about Harrenhal when we get to it in the Clash of Kings, but it's like, Riverrun is so, like, small and out of the way, and it feels like this kind of oasis of a, a hope for peace here early on in Clash of Kings, and Harrenhal is what the Riverlands actually looks like at war. And it's, it's George is putting that reputation in here perfectly. And I love it, love it in the form of, 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 a, of a fairy tale. Again, establishing that Hall kind of has a foot in both those worlds. What I think is like fascinating about Hall is that it kind of reminds me of, you know, Bran has that dream in, in Bran 1 about that massive werewood. And John sees the massive werewood as well in his first, in his second chapter rather than A Clash of Kings. And like River Run kind of reminds me of like the Winterfell Godswood, right? Kind of like nice and like, yeah, everybody likes to, I mean, Catelyn doesn't like going there, but most people like find it, they enjoy their time there. Heron Hall is like that massive werewood with kind of like eating children sort of thing. Like it's, it, it, there, there's something super fucking cursed about that place. And that just makes it so awful and weird. The other thing that I think too, is like, you know, as we were talking about in our Slack for our High Lords ladies and our small council patrons, we were talking about how... Of the books that George has published in the Song of Ice and Fire universe, versus the world, the world of Ice and Fire is not especially the favorite of, of many people. But I do think that there are spots in the world of Ice and Fire 
where George does really great work, especially in his story of Aegon the Conqueror and Heron the Black from the story of the Conquest. Like, that's really, really good. And I want to say that the reason why it's really, really good is that George has a fantastic foundation already in place in the established narrative of that story that we get here from Catelyn's first chapter of Heron Hall itself. They could just expand wonderfully and brutally when we get to it, actually, in the history book itself. Yeah, it is... I, I, I agree with Emmett. It is absolutely one of my favorite, you know, the, the happiest place in Westeros. Um, <laughs> it, it's interesting because, like, you know, talking of fairy tales, like, it reads so much as, like, Russian fairy tale. Like, that there was an evil czar who built this enormous castle, and then the first day he, you know, moved in, it burns to the ground. It's this wonderful story of, like, hubris and human misery turning into this thin place and it like it's it's dolorous guard it is isengard it's musalon if you're a big fan of warhammer fantasy like it is every dark evil castle you can think of put into one and what's kind of like wonderfully ambiguous about it is like it occupies a simultaneous register as high gothic horror and the banality of evil at the same time Exactly. That's what makes it brilliant. Is those? It's both constructing a haunted house story and taking apart the idea of a haunted house story at the same time. Which is, we get into the ambiguity uh, ambiguity about the curse in the sense that, like, you know, with Heron Hall, it both has a kind of horrible consciousness and will of its own and wants to eat you, as like Jeff was saying. But it also it also depends what you bring into it. Like you know, hmm. like the classic cave in Empire Strikes Back. It's what you take with you that really makes Heron so Hall what Bonifer it is. Hasty is right. That a righteous man can sit Heron Hall and not die. As long as he's got his holy 86 helping him. But yeah, that's, that's the sense of Heron Hall. Is it both, it, it, you know, it, it corrupts you, but it also draws people who want to climb too high in the first place. So I think that about wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork. Moving into our more uh, theory slash discussion portion of the episode. You may have noticed that there's a, a big chunk of this chapter that we barely touched on. And that's because we wanted to kind of isolate it here. The same way we did with uh, Donald Noy's metaphorical metals speech uh, in John 1 and 2 when we did that last week. And that is the question here of... How big a mistake exactly was sending Theon? I think we can all agree it was a mistake. It's just, I think it's a question of trying to get past the presentism, as Stephen was saying, because this is often pointed to as one of the main reasons that Robb Stark went down. And I think that's not entirely fair in terms of what information he had and the things that happened that were completely out of his control. I think it's, it's for me, this interesting question when, like, when Catelyn brings up, you know, you should have sent Jason Malister or any of these other people. I'm wondering, would that necessarily have provoked a different response? No, they'd be dead. <laughs> Isn't Jason Malister the guy who killed Balin's heir yeah, I was gonna say, when they, he attacked? Round on the shoreline, right? Like that diplomacy would go. Jason Malister walks in. Hello, I'm Lord Jason. Ow, why are you stabbing me? <laughs> End of diplomatic mission. They wouldn't even get as far as Theon. So it's 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 one of those cases. I think I would probably say, like you were saying about the collision of the fates and decision making. Like this is clearly a mistake on Rob's part, but there's no way he can be held responsible for how it spiraled out of control, and he doesn't really have a good option. When I started out covering Catelyn and, to a lesser extent, Theon in A Clash of Kings, like, this was the one question I wanted to answer. Because it was mm. like, you know, is this their fault? And in my essay on Catelyn 1, I said, Rob's sending Theon was an unambiguous mistake. It's grounded in bad psychological analysis. Like, neither him nor Theon, and that's the bigger problem, understand Balon Greyjoy's theory of mind at all. It's bad power politics. Rob is giving him the 
the the one bargaining chip at the beginning and not the end. Ironically, the same thing that Balin Greyjoy is going to end up doing. But it's not clear how consequential King Rob's error was. The moment Theon sails into the harbor at Lardsport and sees the ships, you know Balon had already made up his mind. <laughs> the you know the the word had been sent, the plans had been laid. He'd worked it all out with Dampere and Victorian and Asha. And we even see that from, uh, you know, so like, he's going to attack the North. You don't send Theon. Theon is probably going to horribly die at Rob's hands. It's going to be awful for everyone involved. We also see from Dampere's dialogue, Balon had clearly, I think, from the moment that he had given Theon up, decided, like, I am not going to let this child of mine be used as a hostage against me. I will create this pseudo boy child (laughs) (laughs) and you know, they will rule and then nothing can stop me. And it reminds me of, of this historical quote from the legendary, uh, you know, medieval warrior, John Marshall at the siege of Newsbury, where he says his son is in a noose outside the walls, just like poor Edmure. He says, go ahead and do it. I still have the hammer and the anvil with which to forge still more and better sons. Like, there's nothing you can do with someone like that. Like, Balon's whole thing is like, I'm going to make myself so completely unpredictable and so beyond the realm of, like, rational calculation that you cannot predict what I'm going to do or force me into, like, a tit-for-tat situation. I'm going to be disproportionate. I'm going to be wildly irrational. I'm going to completely ignore my own best interests. And you'll never see me coming as a result. That's great. Yeah, it's a. It's once again, Catelyn is assuming that everyone will act both in her best interest and in what she perceives to be theirs, and just can't can't deal with someone who's who's motivated by that level of spite deep down. As you say, neither Rob nor Theon nor Catelyn are prepared for that. And I think like there's there's another aspect too. Like we, I was talking about earlier about how Tywin has essentially given up Jamie for dead. Like Jamie's value as a hostage is null and void. The same thing is going for Theon here, where his value as a hostage is null and void. I do wonder whether there's some sort of implicit critique in the hostage taking as a form of leveraging political advantage over your potential opponents that George is making here with the cases of Theon, Jamie. But this is where like presentism is is nipping at our heels because like. It is not normal for Balon to want his only son and heir dead. Right. That is so far out of the boundaries of normal Westerosi political practice that it's it's like not even Tywin would have thought that one up. Now, <laughs> Tyrion's yes says he's he's you know given up Jamie for dead, but I think that's much more an emotional. I, I don't know. I, yeah. I keep flush, I I keep going back and forth on that because like. Tywin does seem to show a surprising inattention to the issue of Jamie, hmm. you know, up until Jamie arrives back in King's Landing. But on the other hand, he he builds so much of like his plan for his, you know, thousand year Lannister right on getting Jamie back that like I, I'm not I'm never sure about that, but I am totally sure about Balon. Balon was like, yeah, kill my kid. I dare you. And I think you're right that it's it, they couldn't have predicted Balin would react so violently and irrationally. But I think part of the problem is that he he was always kind of an outsider to the system they're working within. Unlike Tywin, Balin conceives of himself as not really being part of Westeros. Yeah. And yeah, that's definitely hypocritical to a huge extent. But that is the way he thinks of himself. So 
part of the problem, I think, is the hostage system is designed to, by force, knit people together. But what it did is just drove Balin further into his corner. What I'm saying is I think what Catelyn and really Ned should have anticipated is that Balin would specifically not want the next Lord of the Iron Islands to be someone who spent 10 years on the mainland and spent 10 years absorbing Winterfell attitudes. I think they should have anticipated that that was going to cause some political problems, if not another full-blown rebellion. Like, that is, as we see when Theon gets back to the Iron Islands, that is the main reason no one likes him. It's also just because he's a prick. But it's he hasn't developed any relationships there, and he doesn't. he's not close to the culture there. And maybe if Ned and Robert were more interested in, in a large-scale ov- cultural overhaul of their relationship to the Iron Islands, that would be one thing. But I'm not sure what they anticipated would happen when they eventually sent Theon home to be Lord of the Iron Islands. I mean, you know is, what I mean? This is the tricky thing about the whole, like, old way and new way thing. Is this... This exact strategy has worked in the past. This is how you get, like, the the Lords of Pike and the ki- Kings of the Iron Islands who know how to make alliances with Lannisport and who've hung out in Old Town and they're doing trade and they're doing all this stuff. And, like, everyone gets fooled for a while that they're like, okay, this is a normal political actor. You know, we can deal with this Good person. Point. They're not crazy. And it's like every so often, Balon's father was like, Totally normal yeah. Westerosi <laughs> political actor by his own lights. Uh, but, like, every so often you get this, like, fundamentalist upswing in the Iron Islands, and all of a sudden it's like, well, what can you do if, if the people you're trying to deal with uh, just want to ride shiny in chrome on the road to Valhalla? As we'll get into when we get to Feast for Crows, that constant slippage is what opens the hole, I think, more than anything for Euron, because the Ironborn just are kind of exhausted with both of these pillars, and Victarion's not enough, and Ash is not enough, so that's why Euron gets to stroll in and say, yeah, screw both of them, I'll just, I'm just going to pick the best pieces from both <laughs> and wrap them up in my image and tell you that's enough, and that, that's how it works. But yeah, you bring up a great point that, yeah, this has... There's this constant pendulum swing, and the, the, the strategies that they are employing have worked in the past, and it's just, yeah, no one, no one fully anticipates how cracked... Balin Greyjoy is and a lot of uh, so much so much woe springs from that point so I think that about wraps us up for this episode as always thank you everyone for listening and you know thanks most of all to Steve for joining us where can we find your stuff and tell us more about what you have in in the future what you have in store sure so uh, you can find my writing at raceforthearonthrone.wordpress.com you can find sort of shorter uh, responses on uh, raceforthearonthrone.tumblr.com uh, you can find a lot of my stuff early on Patreon. I too have uh, jumped into the, the Patreon water. So that's patreon.com slash Stephen Atwell. And right now I am working on uh, Jamie 5. So that is the the bath scene to end all bath scenes. Oof. Yes, although I, I have to admit I'm more interested to hear what you have to say about the Roose Bolton scene. Oh, that it's is the second half of that chapter. It's so good. Because it's so delicate. Like, Roose has to convey to Jamie without conveying it. Just stand down, asshole. I'm working for your father. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to work this out. It, it, it reminds me vaguely of... Uh, Emmett, are you reading the, like, uh, Hickman's uh, X-Men right now? Yeah, actually, okay. I am. Did you see the issue with Mr. Sinister? Oh, that's a great it's comparison. Like, boom! Here I am, Vampire Lord. <laughs> oh, <man>. Yeah. <laughs> and and his trestle just, table surrounded by the echoes. It's just great. Yeah, and Jamie just has no idea of like 
you know, he's like, he thinks he's being really smart down here on this level. And Bruce is just like, on all these other levels, pick up the hints that I'm throwing at you like they're lead weights. <laughs> I'm smiling at you. I don't smile at most people. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm really looking forward to finishing that. It's, an, it's always a pleasure having you on for, for these episodes. Thank and you. We will have you on for more episodes going forward in A Clash Amen. of Kings itself. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Patreon, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. If we get to a thousand patrons total, our next stretch goals are doing an episode for our patrons on my favorite chapter in the Song of Ice and Fire, even though it hasn't technically been released, The Forsaken. So uh, check out that if you haven't already. Follow us on Twitter at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can shoot us an email at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. We wanted to shout out and thank you to our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon. Those would be Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf from the West, Sir Sorcedelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Riviers, just a CR of the Tridents, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, and our newest High Lady, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Thank you to all our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome, Nessie. Yes, thank you guys very much, and welcome, Nessie. It's a pleasure having you on our Patreon Slack as well. It's a lot of fun talking with you there. So, join us next week as we head back to King's Landing to cheer and applaud for, I guess the most part, as Tyrion fires General Slynn into the sun. No, I actually just going to send them up to the north and up to, uh, up to Castle Black. And we will be joined by yet another great guest, our very own High Lord, Lord Quint Esquire. It's going to be great to have Quint on and to have his kind of legal angle on things on a chapter, which, as with Tyrion 1, gets right into the questions of power and how Tyrion uses it and Varys' riddle as to where power comes from. We're enjoying uh, having so many guests on in a row. It's been great to get all these perspectives on it, and that's a, that's a classic chapter. That's going to be great. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Steve, so much for joining us. We will see you guys next week.